Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses uh, 16 through 19 this morning. Um, as I read, I'm going to start in verse 14, though. Um, so, uh, Genesis 3, and uh, let's pray, then I'll read the passage. Father, we pray for your help as we always need it, because uh, even though we've um, many of us followed you for many years and even most of our lives, still we know ourselves to be the kind of people who are prone to wander, uh, prone to wander not just uh, having distracted minds and hearts, but uh, hearts that still wander away from you, and we pray that you would draw us back uh, to you, that you would win us Uh, Win our attention and capture our hearts with your love and your grace and your truth. As it's presented here in your word today, we pray that you would do this work by your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones has this keen and profound insight that I think will uh, challenge all of your perceptions about the world. He says, no one is perfectly happy. Things go wrong. No one is perfectly happy. Things go wrong. Uh, There's a thing called Murphy's Law that maybe you all know by heart. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. We're we're almost superstitiously, uh, uh, we we have this tendency to suspect that things will go wrong, right? That good things, when they come into our lives, good things must be too good to be true. Um, We believe that reality is inevitably and ultimately um, frustrating. We at least have this sneaking suspicion that things will go wrong and good things are too good to be true. Uh, We instinctively and clearly sense things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Now, there's something natural about suffering, in a sense, even death. There's something natural about these things, but somewhere deep down we know it's not perfectly natural. It's not perfectly natural. There's something unnatural about suffering and death. There's something tragic about the way that this world is, about the fact that... um, No one is perfectly happy, and things go wrong. Uh, There's something so mind-numbingly tragic about life and about all of our existence that it makes you want to evacuate all meaning from life, all meaning from the world. 
believe that uh, surely this is all just a matter of the random uh, collocation, the, the chance of, uh, of atoms coming together and forming what we see and things that are just, some of things are pleasant and some things are painful, but there's no real moral value. There's no absolute uh, right and wrong. There's no significance and meaning and purpose to all of this because if there was, it would be really painful to believe that in a lot of ways. And so we want to just evacuate all meaning from the world. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 1, the preacher says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, the sun rises, the sun goes down, the wind blows to the south and around to the north, around and around goes the wind. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. So we live in a, in a world that um, is frustrated and frustrating. It's often unbearable and overwhelming, and it brings us to despair how frustrated this world is and, and how frustrating it is to us, this life. And um, it's actually very difficult, however, actually to live as if nothing really mattered. Um, we might want to convince ourselves of that, but it's really difficult to live that way. We can't shake the sense that in things going wrong around us and in our lives and in our relationships and in the world, things going wrong, there's actually something objectively wrong about things going wrong. It's not just unpleasant, but there's something wrong, there's something broken. We can't ignore the haunting feeling that it's not supposed to be this way, that, that no one is perfectly happy and things go wrong. We can't ignore the haunting feeling that there are such things as purpose and meaning and goodness and beauty and truth. It's just that somehow, for some reason, these things have been lost. These things have been abandoned. These things have been oppressed, uh, suppressed, hidden, distorted, or violated in this world. There's something missing. There's something broken. And the Bible explains this right here in our passage. We live in a frustrated and frustrating world as a result of our sin, as a result of our rebellion against God, humanity's rejection of our created purpose as those who are made in God's image. Uh, we ruined our relationship to God and to each other through our self-centeredness, our pursuit of autonomy and supremacy, which we've looked at over the last several weeks as we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 3. And this is spiritual death that we've brought upon ourselves, the loss of relationship with the one who is life, the one who is eternal life. The devil tricked us into allying ourselves with him in enmity against God. So God, in his righteousness, cursed the devil. We looked at that last week. And then he cursed us, which is what we're looking at now. He cursed us and he cursed the world because of us. Right? His curse reveals that he is set against our sin. He's set against our treachery and our rebellion. That he's not just going to sit idly by. He's not just going to roll over and let us have our way in, in violation of his being. In violation of who he is. In violation of his nature and his character and his purpose in the world and in our lives, in our creation. In a sense, his curse simply gives us over to the path that we've already chosen. Right? He's like giving us over to our desire, the path that we've already chosen and begun to walk in rebellion against him. And his curse explains, the curse that we've read this morning, explains why we live in a frustrating and frustrated world. And yet, even in his curse, right here, even in this uh, apparently hopeless few verses, there is a glimmer of hope. There is a glimmer of hope that someday things will be set back right. 
And it's just a faint glimmer. And maybe it's only the kind of glimmer that the hopeful can just kind of barely detect and cling to. But it's there. And through the rest of the scriptures, this glimmer becomes brighter and clearer until we see it manifested and resolved in the person of Jesus Christ, in the full light of his gospel and in the guarantee of his return. Uh, The hope for our restoration, our redemption and our salvation, it starts right there at the beginning of the curse where God addresses the serpent, again, which we looked at last week. God's judgment of the devil, his judgment, his curse of the devil is not in any way corrective. His, His punishment is not of the corrective kind. His curse is not of the corrective kind. It is not hopeful for the devil. But it is hopeful for us uh, because God promised to put enmity between humanity and the devil, an enmity that didn't exist because we'd aligned ourselves with the devil's purposes against God and his war against God. But God promised to put that there, that enmity, which would result in the woman's offspring bruising the head of the serpent, the devil, bruising the devil's head and trampling his power. That's that imagery, is trampling the devil's power and conquering him. And this is the small seed of hope, and uh, it means a lot. It's, it's a seed of hope for a lot of reasons. And again, I'd refer you to the sermon uh, last week. Uh, it's online if you want to explore, uh, in particular, God's curse of the devil and what that means for us. But imagine being the woman, then, hearing this pronouncement that God makes against the devil. He said that, God said, I will cause the woman to have offspring that will make war with you. What, you mean I'm not going to die physically right now? You mean I'm going to live and, and even have children? You mean I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see the fulfillment of your original purpose for me to be fruitful and multiply? We see earlier in the, in the scripture in Genesis. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And um, Eve must have been thinking, as God was talking to the devil, You mean I still get to do that? Yeah, but uh, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So Henry Blochet, commentator on this passage, says that mankind retains the blessing and the power to procreate. But with it there is mingled bitterness so that the blessing becomes a burden. The great disorder of sin so affects the good that God brought forth that everything remains and yet everything is changed. Everything remains, and yet everything is changed. Now, this text, when it addresses the woman, it addresses her role in terms of her uh, relationships. Please don't take that to mean that she's being reduced to a baby factory, right? Uh, someone whose only proper place is to be at home pregnant with the children, um, uh, doing whatever it is that her husband tells her to do. That's not what this text is saying. The text isn't reducing her to anything, it's highlighting what makes her unique in her humanity. It's highlighting what the scriptures have already pointed to, is the uniqueness of the woman in her humanity. Without her 
Being a woman without her femininity, without what makes her a unique human being, a kind of person, uh, Adam's masculinity wouldn't have made for a complete humanity. Um, it was not good that Adam, that man, should be alone. She was made to complement him, right? to, to complete him, to supply what he lacked, to help him, to partner with him in God's purpose for humanity. And without her unique way of being a person, humanity could not move forward. That's the way God made it. Without the woman's unique way of being a person, humanity couldn't move forward. And the most basic level at which that's true very generally, again, not specifically particularly for every single woman, but very generally is that the woman is united to the man in marriage, right? For an intimacy, a kind of intimacy, a deep, uh, transparent intimacy that reflects God's love for his people. It reflects the kind of God that God is, the God of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly united in deep communion. And uh, marriage is supposed to reflect that. Um, she was made for intimacy that reflects God's love uh, intimacy with the man, and she's the one who's able to bear children in order that they would be able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other people who bear God's image, who are made of God's image and, and spread the love of God all over the face of the earth. And so in these two essential relational characteristics of her womanhood, again, not that she's reduced to these things, but um, that these uh, are unique to her as uh, a, a feminine way of being a human being, in these ways, she would be cursed for her part in the ruin of the world. Right? She would be cursed. Uh, when God says, I will surely multiply your pain, he's saying, uh, literally, multiplying, I will multiply. And uh, maybe she begins to hear that as, you know, I, I still get to be fruitful and multiply. Multiplying, I will multiply your pain in the whole process. With great certainty, sufferings will be abundant in the whole process of having children. Right. So while uh, maybe a bit speculative, it is conceivable that had they not sinned, Eve and all women after her would have had fewer or maybe even no hardships in this aspect of their womanhood. Right. No pain in uh, conception and birth and, um, and after that. Maybe there, there was a chance for that. Um, Maybe it's speculative to say that had they not sinned, that was, that was conceivable. But God here, in response to her violation, her violation of her created purpose, he said that he would multiply her pain in childbearing. And John Piper says this, pause and feel the weight of this for women in the centuries before modern medicine. No hygiene, no spinal blocks, no sutures, no cesareans, no antibiotics, no painkillers, and often no recovery. Untold numbers of women died in childbirth and countless more suffered the rest of their lives from wounds that prevented childbirth or any kind of normal sexual life. In other words, even more than today, there were aspects of childbearing that felt like a curse from God, and often that burden lasted a lifetime, not just in the moment of birth. And even with medicine, I mean, there's still often fear in anticipation of becoming pregnant, uh, fear in anticipation of delivering your child. Uh, there's always pain at some point. There's always pain at some point in the process, often 
There's tremendous psychological anguish afterwards, anxiety and depression. Right? In other words, um, the woman suffers extreme vulnerability and pain in her uniquely feminine way of contributing to life, of con contributing to the furthering and the flourishing of human life. Did you hear that? In pain, you shall bring forth children. You shall bring forth children. Not all is lost. God's not finished with you yet. And God also addresses her in her relationship with her husband. He says uh, in 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now this sounds a little bit more like a prediction than a ruling, like he's making this happen. Uh, it, it's more of a prediction that this is just going to happen. Like I said, in a sense, God's curse gives us over to ourselves, things that we had already chosen for ourselves. We've already set our feet on this own path, on this path that we've chosen for ourselves. And uh, <clears throat> there was already something of, of this relational problem because of Eve's sin. She was made to help Adam, right? not destroy the whole world through her helping. Right? She was made to help him to pursue and promote goodness alongside of him, but she subverted that relationship and she led him to his ruin and to the ruin of the whole world. Um, now, because of her own self-centered pursuit then of autonomy and supremacy, um, she could not ever truly be for her husband in the way that she was supposed to be, but in a sense would, would be against him. And, um, and that can also be translated in 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, it shall be, shall be against your husband. There's another way to translate that. And uh, you see a parallel of, these, of this language used in the very next chapter when God is talking to Cain, as Cain is about to be tempted to kill his brother Abel. Um, and in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, um, If you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So there's the same language. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He said to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So that desire for or the desire against here is, um, is the desire to master. And ruling is the necessary remedy. It's what has to take place in order to fix what's broken. Right? Um, the woman would desire to master her husband, to assert herself over against him, contrary to her created nature, to be against him. Contrary to love, right? to be against him. And the necessary remedy would be his ruling her. She would have to be restored to the original created pattern of relationships. And in every marriage... Throughout the history of marriage, the best that you get is a faint hint of relationships working the way that they're supposed to work, full of intimacy, full of mutual encouragement, right relationship, the strengthening that comes from a good relationship, fullness of joy, uh, fullness of life in a marriage. You just get a, a faint hint of that in any marriage throughout the history of marriage. Most of our mar uh, marriages are just ruined 
by selfish impulses with both spouses looking to dominate in the relationship um, and manipulate the other, resulting in the chronic oppression, oppression of so many people in what was meant to be the most beautiful and liberating relationship. Um, Or it results in countless divorces where people despair of finding fulfillment, of finding real relationship and intimacy and joy in their relationship, in their existing marriage, convinced that um, it's better to end this and break this and go look for that fulfillment elsewhere. Maybe in another marriage. And even though that has characterized our marriages uh, throughout the history of the institution of marriage, there again is that glimmer of hope. There has been a history of marriages with the potential for some beauty. Broken marriages, but marriages nonetheless. And Eve uh, would struggle in her marriage. We would all struggle in our marriages. But something of God's initial purpose in our humanity would continue. Eve would suffer in what distinguished her as a woman in, in her relationships. But God was not finished with women yet. That's the faint glimmer of hope that you see in this verse. And then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Jack Collins says about this passage that both men and women will experience pain. The same language, the same word there is used when God says you will suffer pain. Uh, It's used both of the the woman in her childbearing and the man in his toil. Uh, Both men and women will experience pain in their normal spheres of labor. The woman in childbearing, the man in working the ground. The alienation that comes from spiritual death has disrupted human nature, both body and soul, and has also disrupted man's relation to the rest of creation. To the rest of creation. It's because he listened to the voice of his wife. Rather than listening to God, rather than uh, assigning ultimate value to God's words and God's command, he listened to the voice of his wife. We don't have a description of that interaction. Earlier in Genesis 3, we don't know what it was that Eve said as she handed Adam the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. But she said something, and he listened to her voice, and it implies the reversal of that relationship that was originally intended by God. He had abdicated the responsibility that God had given him in that relationship. He'd abdicated the responsibility for leadership in that relationship. He was supposed to guard his wife, and and instead he listened to her voice. And because he ate what he was commanded by God not to eat, he would be cursed in his eating. Food and all the good things in creation that God had given to him as a gift, as a way for him to know God, um, as a way for him to enjoy God, to commune with God. He was supposed to receive these things with thanksgiving and enjoy them in right relationship with God. Food and all, all good things, really. But now because of his idolatry, his eating the food in violation of his relationship with God, his turning away from God in order to take for himself what seemed good to him, Adam would suffer the consequences of that, right? If he was going to eat anything, it would be with difficulty. 
God would withdraw his favor in such a way that, that human flourishing would no longer be automatic. It wouldn't be as easy as going into the garden and picking a fruit off the tree. You're going to eat the plants of the field now. And that's a farming, that's an agricultural picture, right? It would no longer be automatic, easy, and pleasant to get your food. The world would become inhospitable now, threatening to human life rather than conducive to its flourishing. Interaction with this world would become perilous in every way, in every way, but especially here with regard to humanity's function in their work, in their work. Work would become like slavery. There would be a sense of futility in your primary calling in this world. There will be a sense of futility. There's something very literal and very simple about this curse, right? Thorns and thistles, weeds. If any of you have a patch of grass near your house, you know that weeds grow effortlessly. Effortlessly. While great effort would be required for farming just to provide food uh, food to stay alive. Um, There's also something, it's not just very literal and simple, there's something about this curse that extends beyond agriculture. All work would be tainted with pain, with tedium, with futility, with frustration. All work, all of our callings, all of our primary vocations in this life would be tainted with these things, if not filled and primarily characterized by these things. So much work is just like Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill just to see it roll down and have to do the same thing all over again the next day. So much work feels like slavery. So much work actually is slavery. So much of the regular motions of existence seem so pointless and so difficult that we often question whether it's even worth it to go on. A lot of us question whether it's even worth it to go on. But again, there's that glimmer of hope. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You shall eat bread. You mean I still get to do that? I'm going to live and cultivate the land and eat and enjoy the fruit of the land? You shall see some of the fruits of your labors. Life isn't just cyclical, uh, meaninglessly cyclical. There's still potential there. You'll taste something of flourishing, of forward movement, progress, of direction, and some, some sense of attainment sometimes. It might be nebulous, but it's there out ahead of you. Right? Something of God's initial purpose for our humanity would continue. Something. But let's not forget that this is a curse. It's hard for us to think of it. Um, but it is God's rightful judgment against us for our sin. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so humanity spend uh, our lives fighting the dirt to stay alive, and one day the dirt would win. Because humanity is dust. Because humanity is dust. The Lord God in uh, chapter 2 said that he formed the man of dust, originally, 
formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life or the spirit of life, and the man became a living creature. There's a sense in which he was no longer just dust because he became a living creature when God breathed his spirit into him, but because of his sin, he lost his spiritual life with God and became again merely dust. That's because he's dust, just dust, that someday he would return to the ground from whence he came. He was no longer a living creature in the fullest sense. He was just dust, the empty shell of a man enjoying no vibrant relationship with the God who is eternal life. Uh, so he would eventually die and return to the dust from which he came. And the author hammers this concept home. In Genesis chapter 5, you see that this is the book of the generations of Adam. And there's something, this mixture of hopefulness that these generations continue. But listen, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth fathered Enosh, and he died. Enosh fathered Kenan, and he died. Kenan fathered Mahalalel, and he died. Mahalalel fathered Jared, and he died. It's, chapter, it's, it's a chapter full of generations of Adam who died. All those in Adam die. Through Adam, death entered the world. All those in him die. And the world, the whole world, lies broken under the curse that was put on it because of him. Heidi read this in our uh, New Testament reading this morning from Romans 8. That creation, all of creation, not just our relationship with God, but all of creation was subjected to futility. It's in bondage to corruption, decay, that results in death. And it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. Ecclesiastes 1 says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. All things. What we need then is nothing less than the whole world made new. And since the downfall of the world was linked to our downfall, since the whole world was cursed because humanity was cursed for our sin, then the renewal of the world would have to be linked to the renewal of our humanity. Its glorification would be linked to our glorification. And like I said earlier, the faint glimmers of hope that you have here, they become brighter and brighter flashes of hope with more increasing clarity throughout the Old Testament, would there be hope for the woman's childbearing? Would there be hope for the offspring of the woman in her childbearing? There would be countless stories of God making barren women mothers. Women who could not have children, making them have children. There would be whole nations of children, countless as the stars. There would be a line of promise through Abraham by Sarah, through Isaac by Rebekah, through Jacob by Leah, through Judah by Tamar, 
through Boaz by Ruth, through David by Bathsheba, and then one day born of the Virgin Mary came Jesus, the true son who would restore humanity, our humanity, to its rightful place. Would there be hope in the continuation of marriage? Would there be hope for marriage? Marriage is one of the great pictures given throughout the Bible as the way uh, that God saves his people, as the way that God's salvation would come to his people, as he unites himself to them as a bridegroom takes a bride. Right? All through the Old Testament. Again, the book of Ruth, where Boaz, the good man, loves this woman who has really nothing to commend her. Right? She's a Gentile. She's an outcast. Uh, she's a widow. She's poor. And Boaz, this good man, he loves her and he rescues her from poverty and alienation. And brings her in. And he saves her. Right? Hosea, told by God to love his wife even though she was unfaithful repeatedly. She was a prostitute. Hosea was told to love his wife because that's the way God is with people like us. With unfaithful people who have committed spiritual adultery, God loves us and remains faithful to us as a good bridegroom to his bride. Psalm 45, the king, with grace poured upon his lips in splendor and majesty, and the princess made all glorious in her chambers because she listens to his words. And then Jesus who calls himself the bridegroom, come to win his bride. And Paul writes in Ephesians 5 that this Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her to himself, the church to himself in splendor. He would restore us to the beautiful relationship with God that we were made for. Would there be hope for our ever eating food again that would restore us to true life and true joy with God? I mean, God knows what his people need and he provides it. He gave manna from heaven in the morning and quail in the evening came out of nowhere, even to his people who were grumbling and complaining constantly. Against him, he provided the food that they needed. He promised that one day there would be a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he said in Isaiah 55, Come to me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Right? He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food and incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And then came Jesus, the word of God. The bread from heaven. The bread of life who gives his flesh, his humanity, his life for the life of the world whose blood is poured out as wine for the forgiveness of sins, saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. 
Jesus, who promises us a great wedding feast on the day of our resurrection, when we will no longer be people of dust with just earthly bodies, but given heavenly spiritual bodies, even as Jesus has now, bodies that will never taste death again. On that day, on that day when he is revealed in glory and we along with him in the redemption of our bodies and all the world is set back, back right to the way that it's supposed to be, it'll be the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. The curse lifted from this world. Jesus Christ has taken our humanity and he's taken the full undiluted strength of God's curse on himself. And he has set our humanity back right into relationship with God and to the rest of the world over which he has all authority. He is now, as a human, the ruler of the cosmos and the gospel tells us that he is for you. He's given himself for you. He is for you. He is not against you. He said in Luke, in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So we might suffer now, but broken relationships that are all around us, Broken relationships, painful toil, futility in our callings, frustrations of every kind in this world, even death itself, these are not the final word about your existence as a human being. These things are not the final word about your existence. Jesus Christ is God's final word about your existence. And in him, we have the promise of the complete restoration, not only of ourselves, but of the whole world. God wasn't finished with humanity back then in the garden with Adam and Eve. He isn't finished with your humanity now. Jesus lives as a human forever. God is not finished with humanity, with humanity and he never will be. He never will be. Things will one day be the, the way they're supposed to be. You can trust that word and take hope in it and live your life without despair because of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would help us to consider deeply and meditate on, not just now, uh, not just now at this table, but through our lives, throughout this week. Help us to consider the fact that you've not abandoned us in our humanity, not even in this curse that we find at the beginning of scriptures, this terrible and righteous curse that stands uh, against us and hangs over the whole world, it is not the final word about our humanity. Your grace and your love and your son Jesus is the final word about our humanity. We pray that you would help us to find our hope there and our peace there, peace in, in the face of all of our trials and frustrations in this life, all the broken relationships and all the, the tribulations that we face. We pray that you would enable us to face these things with hope, and without despair because of the kind of God that you are and because of what you've done for us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.